but he went out of his way to be like, I really want you to run this week. So I took one day off after that 50K and I ran a hundred mile week subsequently. And then by the end of that week, I was in debilitating pain. Welcome back to the next episode of the Trail Running Women podcast, where we chat with every type of runner. Some are new, some are old, some are new to running, and some, like today's guests, are total studs of the sport. So today we're talking to Devin Yanko, and I generally get a brief bio from all of my interviewees, I believe is the right word, so that I can make sure that I have everything because sometimes the internet picks and chooses what it gives you and there can be fun tidbits when it's from somebody's own mouth. Now, this bio is unlike any other I have received where it is just a list of some unbelievable accomplishments and I didn't have time to get into all of them and I wish that I had. But we did talk a lot about how she was able to do all of these things and kind of found the perfect balance to be able to go after a variety of really crazy big goals while staying healthy and staying happy and staying in a very reasonable and kind of grounded mindset. So I loved everything that Devin had to say. I think you guys will too. So Devin has run more than 50 marathons and 40 of those have been sub three hours. She's run 65 ultras since 2006, ranging from the 50K to 100 mile and has had major success in all of them. She's a seven time member of Team USA. She was on the gold medal winning team in Belgium for the 100K distance. In 2019, silver medal team in Romania for the 50K. And in 2007, 2012, and 2015, RRCA Marathon National Champion. 2010 and 2019, 50 mile road national champion. The list just goes on. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. She's also come top 10 in Comrades Marathon more than three times. We talked to Ellie Greenwood about that crazy, crazy long road race in South Africa. It's 89K and just sounds absolutely grueling. She has a third place at Western States. She's turning 40 this year and we talk about the goals that she is taking on this year pretty awesome. She is able to do fast and flat or hard hilly climbs. So we talk about her training plan, how she got to where she is today. Uh, and like I said, the mindset around accomplishing these goals and how to stay in a place where you're still happy with yourself if you have to adjust your goals like she's had to recently. So I thought there was a lot of wisdom speaking to Devin and I, I think she's just a really fun person. So I hope that we get to stay in touch. And she also has a podcast called Women of Distance, where she talks to other elite women and kind of bridges the gap between us, most of our listeners, and what these women are doing and how we all are similar just going after things and trying to make this sport a more inclusive place for women. So again, so many awesome tidbits from Devin. You can find her on Instagram at fastfoodie. People are leaving reviews or leaving ratings, and I love that, and I want to say thank you so much, and thank you for the most recent review from Charlie talking about Kaylee's epic adventures and finding the right fuel for her. Fueling definitely is a common theme recently. So speaking of fueling, check out Knackbar Nutrition, who is a sponsor of this podcast. They just came out with their new caffeine bars. They have sustainable ingredients, sustainable packaging. They're Canadian, but you can get them out around North America at knackbar.com and use discount code TRW15 for 15% off at checkout. And you get protein powders, bars, waffles, all things endurance with the right carbohydrate to fat and sugar ratios that you need to keep on going. And the texture of the bars is something that is actually easy to get down. Second podcast for today is Gooder Sunglasses. Second podcast, second sponsor of the podcast is Gooder Sunglasses. So if you go to gooder.com backslash TRW, you see my favorites and you can use discount code TRW15 for 15% off at checkout because it's March. Actually, it's my birthday tomorrow. And you know what I would want for my birthday? Gooder Sunglasses, like 18 pairs of them in all the fun colors because running is supposed to be fun. And when I see race photos, I wanna make sure I have the best, funnest sunglasses out there and I want to have multiples so that I always have one in my pack 
one in my ski pack, one in my tennis bag, and I'm never without them because I need them at all times. So go check those out. You guys will love them as much as I do, I promise, because if you look good, you will also run good. And that is science. I think that's it. If you guys want a backlog of all of the interviews, if you missed some, if you joined us later, check out Patreon. And the link to that is in my Instagram bio at hillsport55, where you can find all of the good stuff. If you are looking for a coach, there's a couple spots in there too. More info on that on my Instagram page and all those fun things. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Here is Devin. All right, I am joined here today with Devin Yanko, who I have been wanting to chat to for a while, actually, and creeping through your Instagram and finally got the nerve to ask you. And I'm so delighted that you said yes and you're joining us today. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as we do with most guests, I mean, we were just talking before the show that you are definitely a, a quite a public running figure and share so openly about everything you're going through. But for anybody that maybe doesn't know, um, let's talk a bit about your history and how you got into running, where you are now, and maybe how old you are, your elevator pitch. Oh, I guess that's I not could, longer uh, than that, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh, man, I can be quite long-winded. So let's see if I can condense this down. Um, I am 39. I will be 40 in June. Um, I have been running ultras for 15 years I did my first marathon 16 years ago. Um, I wasn't really a runner in high school or college. I was a basketball player, which when people see me in person, they're like, yeah, that makes sense because I'm really <laughs> tall. Um, I ran like on my own a lot in high school. I ran a half marathon on a whim as a sophomore in high school, but I running wasn't really a thing that... I associated with sports. I know that sounds weird, but like our track team, like we had a cinder track. I'm like, I'm not old enough, like that I should be running on a cinder. Like if I was 60 running on a cinder track would have made sense. But like our school did not care about track and field or cross country to the level of some other areas. So I did other sports. And then when I retired from playing basketball, I had always enjoyed running and enjoyed running long distances. So I was studying abroad and my roommates and I just decided to run a half marathon and it kind of is all history since it just escalated very quickly after that half marathon. So when you played basketball in college, were you playing in like the NCAA or what level were you playing? Yeah. So I was, I played division one. Um, I stopped basically after my freshman year. Um, I was highly recruited. Um, but I ended up having like a very terrible college coach and she basically alienated the entire team. By the end of my freshman year, eight, eight out of the 12 of us left that program. And at that point, I just kind of feel like I can like in hindsight, I'm like, I was just really burned out because I had worked so hard to get a scholarship and to like be one of the best in the country that like, then when I was like in college, I had like nothing left to give. And then it just happened that the coach, she was just the wrong fit for me and apparently for everybody else. <laughs> um, and so it really made it hard because like once I left, I was just like, I don't really believe in this system anymore. Like they were trying to get me to change my major because they wanted me to do an easier major. And I was like, oh the major I'm in isn't even that hard. Like, give me a break. I'm a very smart person. Like, so I didn't play after my freshman year. I had some, like, even though I left that program, I was then like recruited again, um, by some very big names in the sport at the time. You know, I was like talking to Duke and Kansas and programs like that. But I just kind of was like, I just, I just worked. I put so much into it that I just, had to, I just had nothing left and I just like lost the love. And so, you know, I retired and moved on to running. I can, re I can relate to that. I played hockey in um, Minnesota and I had a very similar experience. Yeah. It sounds like you have come to terms with it, but I'm wondering, this is a very deep question right away. 
But at that age, did you internalize any of that as feeling like you worked so hard and failed? Or were you aware right away that like there was something wrong, obviously, with the system? Um, Both, like, you know, there were some underlying, like I, there was some like more life going on behind the scenes, basically, mm-hmm. um, like leading into going to college. So I, I think like, I could kind of, it was like, it's a both and, right? Like I kind of very much at the time was like, this system is fucked up, (laughs) (laughs) right? I hope you loud swearing, Um, you know, (laughs) you know, like the system is messed up, but it also still like crushed me a little bit. But I, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't feel like at the time I like, you know, with burnout, you kind of just feel a lot of apathy. So it was like, then I almost felt nothing right? Like I didn't feel this deep loss. I just kind of was like, why did I, why was I working out like nine hours a day and crushing my soul for this? Like, I don't even like this anymore. Um, and so like, to me that in, you know, I think about that now it's like, I didn't actually feel that way. I just was so burnt out that, that it was a manifestation of that. Um, and you know, I had picked a college based on one, the major at the time that I was pursuing, but I was also really like just trying to run away from my experiences that I had in high school and kind of like run away from home. And like, I was just like, at that time, I thought I could just sprint away to my new future and leave everything behind. And that doesn't really work that way. (laughs) The romantic idea of college we all have, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're like, it'll just fix everything if I live in a different state. (laughs) Oh yeah, I know that. I know that plan. (laughs) So you go off and you run your first half marathon. What kind of times were you putting up as like a first half for fun? Uh, I I think I ran just under two hours. So when I was a sophomore in high school, I think I ran like a 156 and that was like on zero training. Um, And I think similarly, like we ran, like me and my roommates um, in South Africa were running like three days a week, like five miles at a time. So I think I ran a similar time, like a 150. Um, I came home and started running every day with my sister and, you know, training her. And so I think I dropped my marathon, my half marathon time down pretty quickly within like four or five months. Um, and I think it was, two years later that I ran my first marathon. So I definitely just, I tend to go all in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Was there a race or a time where you started to realize that you might be pretty good at this? Uh, Well, it's funny because my first marathon, well, I was very naive um, when I ran my first marathon because I, I finished grad school and I went overseas to London uh, to live. There was a work visa you can get coming out of university. And I kind of thought, you know, I was getting more into running and I was like, I'm training for a theoretical marathon, right? Like I knew I wanted to run a marathon, but I thought I was just going to show up in London in like January and just sign up for the marathon, which is in April. Um, (laughs) And this is in 2005. And so like, it's not, it, you know, obviously things were very different in terms of the internet and everything, but I, I kind of, I think I, I was like, oh, I think I'm like um, eight months too late to sign up for this race. Um, so I kept training and then my roommates that I lived with there and I went up to Scotland on like a week long bus booze trip. Uh, and I love Scotland so much. I was like, I want to come back. So I found the Edinburgh marathon and that was right at the time, like the end of my work visa. Uh, so I went to Scotland and I ran Edinburgh marathon and I ran a three thirty eight, and I had no idea until somebody told me that I had qualified for the Boston marathon. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, if I can qualify for Boston in my first marathon, considering I probably drank at least one double whiskey for every mile I ran. You know, I was 21 living in London. Like, yeah, you know, (laughs) it's probably a a slight exaggeration. It's not like I was, you know, 
drinking my face off, but like, you know, the drinking culture there is like, you go for a drink after work, like every day. Um, and so after that, I kind of was like, well, if I can do that well on that amount of training, what could I do if I actually put in more effort and kind of the brain that had made me into a good basketball player, which was, I'm very confident in my ability to learn and grow and kind of do the work. And I'm, you know, I do have the genetic gift that like I put things in and I get a, you know, I get something out of my body, right? <laughs> like right. my body responds to that. And so from that race, I think I ran my next marathon like three or four months later and I ran a 322. And then the next marathon I ran, I ran a 308 and it was kind of like, huh, you know, and that was like 10 months of progression. And so that was the point where I was like, okay, like I'm not, you know, going to the Olympics here, <laughs> but like, I could see that I was a high, I was like, this is my distance. I'm responding really well to this training and I have potential. And that made me very curious. Um, it also, at the same time, it's part of the reason that I actually ran my first ultra is because I could see the inevitable end to that, like happy progression. Like, I'm like, I'm not just going to get faster forever. And I was a little bit afraid of um, just focusing on these time goals. And that's why I ended up signing up for my first ultra. I also, I, I also signed up for a, an, a triathlon, which I was not, <laughs> did one of those. I'm good. You know, I was like, <laughs> love the ultra triathlon. Not so much. Yeah. That's um, complicated, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that obviously the learning curve there is so fast and I, I recognize that this was a few years ago now, but like you said, the internet wasn't the same as it was before. What did you do? Were you just running more or was there a specific training method you took to take that amount of time off that fast? If, um, if you remember. Uh, well, <laughs> it's funny because when I did my first marathon, I think run, even then Runner's World had plants available, you know, on like an old rickety internet web page kind of thing. Like, yeah. you know, so I think I like hand wrote out a runner's world plan. Um, and I think from there it was like, you know, I just basically took my, like, I just dialed up the mileage. It was like, okay, so I was fine running like 30 to 40 or what I don't even, it was, you know, not that much mileage at the time, like 30, 40 miles a week. And then I was like, well, if I can do that, what happens if I run more than that. And I, so the first year was really like me exploring like what my uh, capacity was in terms of like how much training I can do without getting injured and just experimenting with this idea of like more and more. And I think I, you know, I probably still have the books, you know, like super old school, like uh, marathon training for serious runners or, you know, like those kind of books. Um have, that are just like classics. And I just kind of became a student of the sport and, you know, I would read those and find, Oh, it's like, I think advanced training for marathoners, I think was one of the first books I bought. And I was just arbitrarily being like, okay, well, this says, if you want to be good, you run X amount of mileage or you have this many weeks, you can run this amount of mileage. And I just kind of experimented and just kept escalating until I found my, you know, like, obviously, within a year, I wasn't, like, up to running crazy high mileage, but I just kept refining those things. You know, I didn't go out and drink every night. You know, I changed my diet. I, like, did strength training. So I kind of just took a, a more serious approach, and I think that that made a really big difference mm -hmm. um, in that do you find now when you're, you're coaching athletes that you sort of have to experiment to find that sweet spot for everybody individually, or do you think it can be in like a, a book? Uh, it is definitely an experiment of one. And I try to tell my athletes that straight out of the gate, because I think it's really hazardous for people to think that there's like an ideal number that exists for all people. And like, we are all a series of like really complicated factors. And I try to take all of those things into account. And I basically say, you know, 
I look at what people have been doing and it's like, can they stay healthy at what they've been doing? And then I was like, okay, let's see if we can add a little more. And like, if we add a little more, what are the results? And you kind of, I like try to get them to what their capacity might be. But to me, it's also the majority of people are trying to balance this with the rest of their lives. Like Mm -hmm. running isn't their life. And so I don't think that every runner is necessarily going to get to their, you know, like if they were training like a monk or, you know, just had no responsibilities, like what people's capacity is, is probably different, but like, I kind of try to play with all of those factors to make sure that what we're doing is very sustainable and moves them towards their goals. Yeah. I think it's, it's tough because for a while and it's, I think it's getting a little bit better, but it really felt like everybody in the ultra world was like the hundred mile week is the thing, which is for somebody, if you have kids or young kids and a job like that is so much and if you're especially if you're here where there's so much elevation and so technical um I found it's like pulling people back can sometimes be more of the direction you have to go than trying to increase yeah exactly I just I think that that notion is it's silly because like running 100 miles is not mad it's not like some magical number that equals success and like I think about when I ran Western States in 2016, if you look at the three of us who were on the podium for the women, the three of us trained so extremely different. And it's like, and yet we were all like there on the, on the podium. And it's like, it was Casey Lichtig who runs like crazy high mileage. Amy Sprosten runs very uh, moderate mileage. And then I'm kind of like more in the like, in between the two of them. And so it's just really fascinating because you're like, there are so many different formulas for success. It's not about what works for other people. It's not about what looks sexy on Strava or the internet. It's like what right. works for you. <laughs> yeah. That's super interesting. And I'm glad people like if you're a caliber are kind of saying that as well. I think that's important for people to hear. So getting back a bit to your story, I mean, one of the things now that is mind blowing since you started these marathons and got down to 308 is that you've now run sub three 40 times. <laughs> yeah, I have to like keep a spreadsheet to keep track of it because I like forget for myself that I'll be like, oh no, I actually like um insane. I've run an insane amount of marathons and like the ones that are yes. over. The ones that are over three hours are usually like trail marathons that, you know, climb a bunch or like, you know, I have a couple, I've paced people in races and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of sub three hour marathons. (laughs) And so, and your PR was 238.55. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, 22 minutes more than that feels probably (laughs) like your comfortable marathon pace, which is totally crazy for us. Um, (laughs) Shorter thicker shufflers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, every time I line up in a marathon, I'm like, can I, I'm like, can I run that fast? I don't know. Can I? So like it never, I never take it for granted. You know, I'm always like, oh, okay. This is what we're doing today. This is great. Yeah. Well, I think, and keeping positive minded about it too, probably really helps. I have never tried to run a road marathon fast. It's been all trails. So my friend and I are training right now and she might go sub three is probably totally capable and I think if everything goes right, I like might get 310. So it's um, that pace to me right now is very familiar in my <laughs> brain and just is like, it's crazy. I'm yeah. just very impressed. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously to run 238, 2000 and, was that in 2012 or 2016? That was 12. Yeah. Okay. So that's not that much time really um, since you started. And I know we talked a bit about like, okay, so you're finding the right amount of mileage. What about speed work and getting really specific? Did you hire a coach and like really have to dial in for that to, to do that? Um, I, so I, let's see, 2006 would have been when I ran like a 308 and I had a friend, I don't even remember how we met. It was, you know, random San Francisco friend and he kind of helped me with coaching and we would like go do track workouts. But like, I mean, I said, I didn't run track. I didn't run track in high school, which is not true because I ran as a freshman and it was awful because they put me in the 800, which is like when you don't know anything about running hard, like the worst possible thing (laughs) to put somebody into because I would just die a fiery death every single time. 
So I didn't come into like part of what I loved about marathoning was like, I don't have to run that hard. Like, you know, like I'm kind of like in this like groove, like your happy place, happy pace kind of thing. And you're not, you know, running at the edge of your limit. And so I started doing some workouts with him and he was kind of like a coach advisor. Um, but I still mostly did my own training. I did get a coach when I started, when I really transitioned. So my first ultra was 2006. And so my first full year of ultra running was 2007. And that was, I think it was like the end of 2007. I started working with a coach. Um, his name's Howard Nippert. He's super old school ultra runner. And I met him because I had made the hundred K national team. Okay. And so I kind of was like, what am I doing? I don't know. <laughs> you know? And I, so I had qualified like on, you know, on my own and just kind of putting it together with like mentors and things like that. Um, and reading like the tome of like, there's like the complete book of ultra running, which has been, I don't even think that's the name, but you know, like there's this one book about ultra running that's, you know, a thousand pages long and it's been around forever. And I just kind of like took that, but that has its limits. So when I started working with Howard, um, that really is when like I started kind of incorporating more of those elements into my running. Um, I got, you know, I had, I think I ran in 2007, I think I ran my first sub three hour marathon. I think it was at Napa. I actually won, I think. Yeah, I won that race and it was like low 250s. Um, but then I got real, I was like so focused on ultra running until I heard about this thing called the Olympic trials marathon. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so in two, uh, like 2010, 2011, um, I started really training, like, like a really training, like a marathoner and trying to actually, you know, make a concerted effort to run a fast time. And at that time, the qualifying standard was 245. And so in 2011, I ran like my first real effort at like trying to go after the, that. I ran Houston Marathon 2011 and I missed the time. I think I ran 247, which I should have, like I, I was over the moon about because it was a big PR for me. Um, but obviously didn't qualify me. Um, so I turned it around and in, it must've been April of that year, I ran the LA marathon and it was like a monsoon and that course is not a fast course, but I had like the most remarkable day and I ran a 243. And that was really when I was like, okay, like I have this in me and I'm starting to understand what it takes. Um, so I ran the 238 was the following January at the Olympic trials, which were in Houston. Wow. Okay. So my brain went in two directions there. Obviously <laughs> I first want to talk about your, you're obviously super mentally tough. Um, what kind of things do you talk to yourself, um, say to yourself during a marathon like at a 238 pace, like that hurts. How do you get through that moment when you're like, this was the worst idea I've ever had? Um, you know, I, after that, like at that point, I was just kind of like, <clears throat> when I ran the 243, I had like no idea. I kind of was just like every mile was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm still running this fast. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like it was, I had such a good day that like the mental, like the hard parts didn't feel that hard. Um, and you can kind of take that for granted when you have like a perfect day, you're like, oh man, this is so easy. Um, I will say after that, leading up to the 2016 trials. Now, granted, my life was a lot different because I had opened the bakery at that point. But because I had started accumulating these fast times, like after Houston in 2012, uh, like six weeks later, I ran the Napa Valley Marathon and I set the course record there in 239. So like I ran a 238 and a 239 in like three a three month period. And then I won San Francisco Marathon later that year in like 
some ridiculous time that having run that marathon five times now, I'm like, I have no idea how I ran that fast. I think I ran like a 245 on this insanely hilly course, right? So when I started gearing towards the 2016 trials, I found it mentally harder because I took for granted my ability to, I was like, I should just be able to run this pace. Like this pace isn't that fast. Right. And I would get into that situation where I, it's almost like I wasn't prepared for when it was hard. And then I would like get, I was really hard on myself. And so ultimately I kept running into this wall where I was like, I can't talk myself out of this. Like I keep being like, I should be able to do this. Why can't you do this? And then like not having the races that I wanted to. And so I kind of stepped away and that's when I, instead of running the trials in 2016, you know, I went to try to get a golden ticket, which I did and like ran Western state. So I just changed my direction because I was like, I'm having a mental block here and I can't just mentally talk myself out of it. So I was like, I need to step away from this specific goal and then kind of come back to it. So like generally, I mean, it kind of depends on the day, like what I, how I talk myself through the hard part of a marathon. But I think having ultra running experience, like for me, like the marathon, it's like, it's so short comparatively, like the mental, like this, the suffering is so much less that I kind of am like, okay, now it's hard. And it's like, this is what you were prepared for. Like I, I kind of just call on how hard the training is and like how hard I've worked to be like, this is what you've set yourself up for. Like just lean into it and just kind of, I try not to like overthink in that moment. I find that I never have like one mantra that I always kind of go back to, but in a marathon, I tend to be able to just focus on very like simple thoughts and be like, you know, I'll hear something on a podcast or I'll like read a book by a, you know, a well-known runner or hear they'll say something and it'll just stick. And then I'll like repeat that to myself over and over again to kind of keep myself in the moment. Um, And it just kind of keeps me focused on the goal at hand. Because I know if I let my mind run wild that like I'll have that experience like I did leading up to 2016. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And so looking at the dates of all the things that you've done, that was kind of what I was wondering. Like, are you feeling then when you're going to obviously you want to do well at everything you do. Right. So you go to Western States, um, also first place at Leadville in 2017 at the 100 mile distance. Like, are you feeling then pulled in multiple directions? But it sounds more like it was a necessary break and shift in focus. So more beneficial than it was trying to do all the things at once. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like earlier in my career, like before we opened the bakery, like leading up to, so we opened the bakery in 2013. I would say like 2009, 10, 11, I struggled with trying to do it all because I did have sponsors, you know, I was like on the Solomon global team and they had a lot of expectations. And so like 2011, you know, I really was like, I really want to run a fast marathon. And it was like, that wasn't really in line with like what my sponsorship obligations were. So it's like in, this is like the perfect example of the ridiculousness of trying to do it all in 2011. So I ran those two marathons, Houston and LA and then I turned around and I ran Mad City 100K, which was the national championship, because I wanted to qualify for Worlds that year. I did. I won that race. So I won the road 100K national championship. Eight days later, I went to the Grand Canyon with Chrissy Mail, and we did the FKT for rim to rim to rim. Rim to rim to rim to rim to rim. No. Yeah, <laughs> rim, you it, I was trying to... <laughs> rim to rim to rim. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, and then like two weeks later, I think I was like on a plane to Australia to try to do the 100K there. And like that race, I think I got like 20 miles into it and I was like, I was so tired, you know, but like I did feel like I needed to do all the things. Um, and like that I was, oh, I always kind of felt like 
if I chose to do one thing, I was failing other things. And at that point, I felt a lot of pressure that I should run, be running 100 milers and I should be trying to do Western states. And I kind of was like, that's not really like at that moment what was sparking joy for me. Um, and so I kind of learned that lesson the hard way. Um, and, you know, I've definitely continued. I, I suffer from like really wanting to do it all and like wanting to do it all well. And then like reaching that ceiling where it's like some of these things are incongruent, like some of these things don't work together. Um, and I've, you know, I've over time, you know, I've been, it's been 15 years in ultra running now. Like I have figured out how to do like how to choose my goals for different races. So it's like, I can run marathons and be competitive, but not, you know, going all in on them. And like, you know, I can kind of dial things up and down depending on what's the most important thing for me. But I try to not make every single thing the most important thing because that's when you have that conflict. Um, and I try to now when I plan out my years, like I try to make, so like 2012, I did it really well because I ran the trials, ran Napa, ran two oceans, which is a 56 K on the road. And I ran comrades. Like those things were really congruent because those are all fast road things. Even if, you know, comrades is 56 miles. Like, so that was a year where I was like, oh, look, I can do these things and these all work together. Um, and they are symbiotic and like versus trying to do the thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to run a road 100K and I'm going to run a trail 100 miler and I'm going to do, you know, try to qualify for the trials in between. Like that doesn't, I found that that doesn't work. Um, and I've had good coaches over the years be like, you know, I can kind of. I can be happy like racing and being like not racing at like an A level and kind of like be like do a lot and be like, I'm fine with this. But like I have had good coaches to be like, okay, you say you want to go run like a trials qualifier or you say you want to do X, like then they'll like have that come to Jesus moment with me and say like, then you can't run five ultras before you try to go qualify for the trials. Like, you know, so that has helped. And I think I just have learned over time how to make all of these things work together. Yeah. I mean, for a problem that I think a lot of people have, which is wanting to do all the things at once. And you've certainly managed to do a lot of the things. Yeah. (laughs) Have you had any major injuries that you've dealt with? Um, I hadn't had any really big injury problems until last year. Um, the only exception to that was I had a freak thing happen to me at the end of 2016, like after Western States. So at Western States, I kind of had an issue with like my shin. I kind of got like a mild compart in hindsight, like a mild compartment syndrome issue. And that caused me problems later down the road. Um, and in 2017, I had come back from that, which was not a big setback. I just, you know, like took a month off or whatever, but in 2017 coming off of that, I actually broke my foot. Um, I was making coffee and I shook my foot and it popped, like I snapped a bone in my foot. Um, yeah, it was, (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was misdiagnosed. Um, and I ran on it for six months because they had done. So the people who had been trying to figure out what my kind of shin foot problem was, they had found something in my foot, in, in my foot called a tarsal coalition. Um, Carrie, Carrie Diamato apparently had the same condition. So we've bonded over that. Um, because it's very, it's not a very common thing for people to know about themselves. Um, so my navicular and my calcaneus essentially were connected. This could be from birth. It could have been some weird, just like cartilage kind of connection. But when I shook my foot and it snapped, that is one of the things that broke. Um, and the people who had been helping me like previously, the doctors looked at my x-ray or my MRI and they were like, oh, you broke your coalition, so you're good to go. But they didn't look any further. And so they missed a huge fracture in my calcaneus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it was a stable non-union at the time. So like, uh, I was training at that point to run two oceans and comrades in the London marathon. Um, and so I wasn't really feeling it. Also, I was taking like the, a ridiculous amount of aspirin because they told me I would have some pain, arthritis-like pain. So I ran those races. I came in top 10 at Comrades. Um, and then I started training that summer. After that race, I started training for Leadville. Um, and once I was starting to run trails, I noticed every time I step on a route, like the pain that I was experiencing was like, would go off the charts. Um, so I was like, well, I'm not going to deal with this right now. I'm going to run Leadville. I'm going to tell my crew I can't drop out because of my foot and I will go to the doctor afterwards. And so I ran Leadville, went to a different, like a foot surgeon a week later. And he was, he looked at my old images. So the original images he looked at, he's like, yeah, your foot hurts because you have a complete fracture of your calcaneus, you know, the most weight bearing bone in your body. So, so I had, yeah. So I had to have surgery, um, in 2017. And then, so I came off surgery just fine. Like they just took, they actually just took the bone out. Um, because, the whole complication of pins and screws and all that kind of stuff. Right. They didn't want to end my career. Um, so that was my first real major injury. And then last year I had two back-to-back injuries. Um, I broke my, I basically broke both, I had stress fractures in both of my femurs um, back-to-back. So I had a uh, one in my right leg coming out like at the very end of 2020, like December. So I came back from that and then ended up breaking, well, having a stress reaction on my other femur at the hip. So the first one was like at the knee and then the other one was at the hip. That one, like both of them were, the first one was mostly bad coaching. I hate to say that because I hate to like not take responsibility for my own actions and like no, but it's important and you want to do what is prescribed for you coach, so they have to be paying attention to what they're putting people through yeah and I had in 20 at in December of 2020 I ran a 50k time trial a solo 50k time trial and I ran a 315 so <laughs> that would have been if it had been a real race it would have been the third fastest time for an American woman at that moment ever, you know? So yeah. very solid, yeah, very solid. Like I split a 245 marathon on my own on like a, not even a flat course. Um, and I come off that and I was really sore. Um, you know, I was running in the next percents, which tend to make, put a lot of pressure on people's like pulpiteal muscles and calves. And I told my coach, like, I'm pretty darn sore. And my coach at the time who was never someone to kind of be like, I really think you should run. Like it was usually like, here's your plan. And I don't need a lot of handholding. So I would have just, if he, but he went out of his way to be like, I really want you to run this week. So I took one day off after that 50 K and I ran a hundred mile week subsequently. And at, by the end of that week, I was in debilitating pain. Um, the underlying thing that caught like, so it was like that decision for him to be like, I really think you should run. Even though I told him I was really sore was the primary thing. The other thing it turns out that was underlying that stress fracture is that in the summer of 2020, um, I did something through Aravipa called the summertime binge and I ran 10 50 Ks in 10 days. Um, and on the 10th day, it turns out, Um, I only remembered this after the, after somebody found it, um, using ultrasound on the 10th day, I slipped, um, on a trail called the French trail in the Bay area. And my sister reminded me after the fact, she's like, yeah, you said you like blew out your knee. Well, it turns out I had partially torn my ACL. So when I didn't take the time off after that 50 K the muscles that were sore were the muscles that were doing the work like picking up the slack of, course, of the yeah. ACL. So it's like that underlying issue is what caused that like biomechanic problem 
to like have such a swift effect. Um, Cause I have like, you know, because I had two stress fractures last year, I've checked my bone density. I've checked all my levels. Like I don't have, like my bone density is rock solid. Well, and it Um, wouldn't make sense that it suddenly would start. Yeah. All those years of my Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that was really frustrating. Um, And I understand that his intent his intentions were good because I was supposed to turn around and run the Hoka Carbon X project. Right. So it was like the 50K kind of, it was a goal, but it was like, oh, look, I have this really amazing opportunity. I don't, I'm not sponsored by Hoka anymore, but like Hoka brought me into, they were going to bring me on to do that event. And I was in really great shape, obviously. And so it just like was a big bummer that that happened. Um, and the other stress fracture, so I came back from the first stress fracture. Um, and at the time, we still had hope that there was going to be a 50K world championship. So I've been on a 50K world championship team. And obviously, like I'd run a really good time. So I was like, I think I can do well at that. So um, Tyler Andrews and I, so Tyler runs for Hoka. He's the founder of Chosky, which is our co- the coaching collective I'm a part of. He and I put on a track 50K. Oh my God. Yeah. And we did it at a track near my house and the track just turned out to be really long and narrow. So like tracks are 400 meters, but like how they get to 400 meters isn't consistent. And the, the turns were really tight and, you know, I'd been already injured. And so I, I think just all of the really tight turns had given me like it just put a lot of pressure on my left hip. Um, and then basically while I was like, hmm, my hip started to hurt. Like as soon as I had pain, I stopped running. So I had pain on one run, didn't run again. And I was like trying to stretch it out. And I think while I was like trying to fix this problem, I tore my pubofemoral ligament. So, you know, like the ligament that like holds your hip into your pelvis. Yeah, you. <laughs> And that, like that tearing is what caused it. Like, it's like where that connected onto the hip is actually where the stress reaction was. So like, it was more of a traumatic thing versus like an overuse thing. Um, But, you know, that was really hard because I had defined myself for 14 years on being really durable and like not really struggling with injuries. And so it was really hard to have, that experience to kind of be like, am I not durable anymore? Like, am I just, and like a lot of people start treating, treating you and talking to you in a very specific way when you have back-to-back injuries, like you've been doing something wrong and you're going to have to fundamentally change what you're doing. And I don't really agree with that. So it was just, it was really hard, but that was the first time I really had that experience of dealing with like chronic injury issues. That's interesting, though, when you say, like, defined yourself as someone durable. What about the definition of you kind of as a person in general, which at this point obviously must be as a successful runner? Um, Do you have fear over that and if things change? And there was actually one of your Instagram posts where you kind of are altering goals, but you had a few sentences that really stuck out um, in one of them. And I'll read them if that's okay. Yeah. It says, I'm constantly selling myself short. I'm always erring on the side of insecure. This made me feel uh, lately a profound sense of never enough. I'll never accomplish enough. I'll never be enough. I'll never prove myself to who or what for. I don't know, but it's a toxic narrative and it doesn't serve me. I think that is something that's so big when we start wrapping our identity into sport. Can you talk to us more about that? Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, I, after my experience with basketball, like I really didn't want to go down that path with running. Um, but I think I kind of, I don't know if I erred in the wrong direction, right? Like almost being like, Oh, I don't care about my running accomplishments. Right. Like kind of like, uh, it was almost like not tr- deliberately trying not to identify as a runner, but still identifying as a runner. But like, I realized that I have built my life around running and like that 
is okay. But at the same time, I only, I, I haven't, I haven't built my sense of self around the accomplishment part, right? So it's like, I see myself as a runner. I love being a runner. I love being part of the community. But like, I kind of like, you know, like win a race and I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, and I put the belt buckle in a Tupperware in the closet, (laughs) you know, like the only things that I have out are like things that don't fit in a Tupperware. And like, I think part of the problem that I internalized from our sport is our sport has some really toxic narratives. And like one of those things, I was actually going to do a post about this, but I didn't, but so I can tell you what I was thinking because I, after Havelina this past fall, which I DNF'd, um, I was wearing this brace. They gave us like bracelets for our corrals and mine was for the golden ticket. And I have been wearing it for like months since. And after the like 10 days ago when I ran Black Canyon and had a bad fall and had to DNF, I like was thinking about it and I was like, why am I focusing on my failure failures? Like I don't believe in that. Like I don't believe in dwelling in on failure. I feel like I take the lessons and move on. So I'm like, why am I wearing something to remind me of my failures when I don't I don't wear my belt buckles, you know, I don't have a lot of race t-shirts and I feel like that's something that is actually born more out of like our community because like, I know a lot of people who are like, I would never wear a belt buckle. I don't even wear race t-shirts and like this kind of false modesty, like, oh, I would never wear a whatever. Like, I'm like, dude, I want to like, I want to trumpet that shit like, I want to be proud. I want to be loud and proud. And like, but I feel like it's not like cool or acceptable, especially like in the competitive side. Like most of the people that I've picked that up from are highly successful runners and they don't do those things. And so I've always felt like really self-conscious, but I think I took that. It's like, I took that too far, right? At some point it stopped being like something I was hearing from other people and something that I had just internalized for myself. And so I kind of needed the reminder to be like, you know what? I have accomplished a lot. I, it's like my identity should be, wow, look at what I have accomplished. And if I never do anything more, it doesn't change who I am as a runner. And I think that part is the important part is to be like, I don't need to do something in the future as a runner to feel good about what I've already accomplished. And if my relationship with running changes because of injury or illness or desire, right? Like it doesn't negate everything that I've already done. So it's kind of like, I'm trying to like go back and be like, actually, I am amazing. And like, actually, I have done some really cool things. And like, I need to stop. You know, I think this is true for everybody is like, we don't need to hear that from other people. We need to be telling ourselves that and like, I am very honest with myself, but I'm like trying to make sure that when I am honest with myself, I'm honest with myself about the good, not just the bad, which is, I think, what a lot of people tend towards. Yeah, I love that so much. That is such a good point. And I know exactly what you're talking about, because even in my smaller community, there's like this, oh my God, this person posted that they want to race. And it's like, yeah, because they worked for like eight years or eight months, sorry. And then had the race of their life and like, why not? And why wouldn't we all be like putting out the good stuff too? Um, and I think it's awesome. Why not celebrate it? Yeah. I mean, I, and it's like, I have thought about this even more in recent times because of like people posting about DNFs. And like, when I read people's posts about DNFs, I'm like, you're posting about how heartbroken you are and how much you loathe yourself and how much of a failure failure you are right? You are saying all these negative things about yourself, but then you don't do the positive. Like that to me is what really started bringing my attention to that problem is like, we are happy to, you know, woe is me on the internet and like, not like take a good perspective on the inevitable of like having a bad race or a DNF. Like we're willing to put that out there, but at the same time, we can't celebrate ourselves. Like that seems 
Yeah, and why totally is that wrong? more acceptable to, <laughs> yeah. to hate on yourself than it is to be excited about something? Exactly. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, there's definitely a lot with just the way the world is now with yeah. social media and everything and Strava, like you mentioned, and the race t-shirt uniform and all the things for sure. So a couple of last questions. We're nearing the end of time. This has gone really fast. I have so many <laughs> things I could ask you about. Um, you do have a podcast. You have a big platform on Instagram, like kind of on that same topic. What are some goals you have um, with your platform? So to speak? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to try to say this as um, politically diplomatically correct as possible. Uh, you can just see, you can go on my Instagram and see my pictures of smashing the patriarchy. Um, I, uh, for many years, I put a lot of faith into our sport becoming more equitable, like by like natural progression, right? Like I just thought like, oh, like this sport is still growing and it's in its infancy and it'll get better for women, just naturally over time. And then like statistically that hasn't bared itself out um, at all. Like from the 2006 to now, I think the increase in participation for women is like, I think it's less than 8% increase. We're still in like the low 30% of women, like 30% of participants last year were women Mm -hmm. around about like, obviously I could look up the statistic I wanted to be right on, but like, that's not a lot of growth. And the part that bothers me is our sport has had like this big jump in growth around like, I would say like 2015, like 2012, 2015, like through that like time, like there was this huge kind of jump in terms of like ultra running becoming like super popular and like more people coming into the sport. There was an explosion in participation. And I feel like women are especially like it on the, the side that really bothers me is like as professional women, we really haven't seen the benefit of that. Like I, you know, like part of the reason I started the podcast was because a a very good friend of mine did this amazing um, FKT and she basically got, I went out to different podcasts and was like, you should talk to her. And they were like, no, we're not interested. And like, like I was like, this is the, one of the best FKTs of the year. Like, and she's getting no respect for it. Like it infuriated me. And I was like, and, and, and the people who were saying no were all men. And I really bothered me that the gatekeepers were all men and the people who are really starting to have a lot of voice in the sport and, um, caring like, and changing the culture are all a small handful of men. Um, and so sort of, part of starting the podcast was very much that, um, I just, I just find it, you know, the way that women are being supported is severely lacking. You know, you, it's like, yay, we have race coverage now where we follow people around. And it's like, women are not getting the same amount of airtime. Women are not being followed and respected in the same way. So I think with like all of my platforms, that issue really found me versus me kind of like I wouldn't have ever identified as a feminist in the past. Like I thought that was a bad word. And now I'm like, yeah, I am a hundred percent a feminist because I am like going to people, popular podcasts in the space that are run by men and hand counting how many women they've interviewed and running the statistics on it to see if that is equitable and they're not, you know, it's like, so I've found that that's really where my passion lies. And like, I want to see that change in the sport. And so for me, like more than winning any other race, this is something I've felt strongly about. Like, I just really want to have a positive impact on the sport. And I think the thing that is most in like, where I'm focusing that on is doing 
positive thing for women in the sport and like making sure that the women that come in the next generation and the next generation have it better and like have a, you know, have more opportunities, can make more money in the sport, are better, are more respected, get the same amount of airtime, like things like that. So that's really kind of the direction um, I'm going with my platforms. And also like, I tend to also just be very committed to sharing my experience because I feel like one of the things that people respond to really well about like my Instagram is that I share my real experiences. And I think there's a lot of value in like making other people in the world feel less alone. So that's kind of like my personal like commitment to like transparency and vulnerability. Um, but the main issue in terms of like jumping on my soapbox is definitely women in the sport. <laughs> yes, I can agree with those things. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, yeah. I think we probably started our podcast for similar reasons. Yeah. We should mention yours is called Women of Distance because there's going to be listeners screaming going, what is what? it? <laughs> what is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's great. I've enjoyed so much because it's definitely um, fun to hear. Like there's no, I do a lot of a few pros. And then a lot of regular women so that people hear other people who are like, I want to run my first 50K and I have a family of three. Like, what the fuck can I do that? Yeah. Um, but there are no professional women talking to other super high level yeah. women. And that discussion is super unique and cool. So um, yeah. I love listening to yours. And I think your Instagram does a good job of showcasing things, accomplishments in a humble and real way. And that's kind of what the internet needs more of instead of just like the highlights where people are like, does this just happen overnight? You just wake up and win stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause that bothers me too, because I'm like, <laughs> that is not like, that is not the story. And like, I don't. And I think that that's like one of the reasons, like the way that we interview our guests is like, I try to be like, tell the audience how you're a normal person and how you didn't just come out of the womb crushing things. <laughs> you know, like I think that that's an important thing because like, I do think that especially with like professional women, like there is the expectation to put a certain image out and like, you don't get paid for vulnerability or real, you know, being real. And I think that that then perpetuates this like social media is not real life thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I don't want to, you know, I'm not playing that game anymore, which is really nice. Um, so it's like, it gives me an opportunity to just kind of be like, yep, professional runners. We're just like you. Sometimes we are just spazzing out, having a hard time. <laughs> spazzing out. Yep. That's a good way to put it. Okay. So we're almost, uh, we're almost at the end of the time here. So a couple quick questions. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite race distance? 50 miles. What's your favorite race course? Oh, that's a great question. It's hard. Uh, isn't it? it is hard. I mean, but we do this to everybody also. So I, <laughs> um, favorite race course of any distance. Yes. Okay. Two oceans, 56 K. That's okay. easy. That sounds, yeah. sounds beautiful. Yeah. Favorite workout. Oh, long run. Long run. Nice. Long yes. Run. That's some, somebody described it as that. It's like, that's like the ice cream of your week. And I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's totally true. Every, everything else terrifies me. It doesn't matter how many times I do something. I'm always like, nope, still scares me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair. Um, favorite type of cross training. Mm, stand up paddleboarding. Okay. That's a good one. Max squat weight. Ooh, now, right now or in the past? In the I past. Used, oh man. Never. I probably could squat double my body weight when I was a basketball player. I probably got over, I think I probably, mm, I don't know about double. I think I got over 200. I definitely got over 200 nice. pounds, but now, um, uh, yeah, I definitely probably... I'm, I'm getting old no because I can't, I am getting old because I can't remember, but I mean, I can squat, you know, decent amount now too. So that's awesome. Good. That's, that's good. A lot of people are afraid of squatting. So that's a fun question. No, it's really good for your running. So everybody should be heavy squatting. Yes. Yes. 
Good. You hear it. You heard it here. Um, how tall are you? Six. Well, about just over six foot. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and last question. What is your favorite go-to post-race meal? Uh, burger, fries. Although I can't eat the bun. So I, I'm always like, hopefully a lettuce wrap burger. Like hopefully there's an in and out somewhere close because I'm all about that. I will say my answer may have changed at Havelina because Corinne Malcolm, who runs Fritidas, who's a very good friend of mine, um, introduced me to uh, tachos. So it's like tater, tater tot nachos. Whoa. And, and that might have like totally changed my life. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That's my biggest takeaway from this conversation. (laughs) Go try that tonight. (laughs) Um, Okay. And last, actually last, last question. What are you, what race are you most looking forward to in the future? Um, Where I'm going to just cheat and say, I am most excited about my summer plan to do what I'm calling the DY DIY slam. Cause I'm running a lot of races on that slam. It's five 100 mile (laughs) races. And they most, and it's it's it has some mild logic to it. I do two faster races and then three more mountainous races. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a lot. Well, I'm excited to follow along on that journey. Um, so if our listeners want to find more of you, your Instagram, your podcast, your coaching website, plug all the stuff, please. Um, my Instagram is at fast foodie. Um, that has links to everything, including my um, very unknown, but pretty awesome um, YouTube channel because I did a whole injury series last year. I did videos about the 10 50 Ks I did. Um, I have a website, the link for my coaching collective. It's Chosky is the name of it. Um, All of that you can find on my Instagram and women of distance also on Instagram. We have a website too. You can download it. I think everywhere, but I also am relatively new to podcasting. So I'm just kind of floundering around in the darkness on my own here. <laughs> well, I can tell you it's a lot better than than floundering. And I will link all of those things in the show notes as well. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun talking to you.